Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, OFAD lads and lasses. This is the Once for All Delivered podcast, a podcast which exists and, well, what more can we say? I am Andrew Smith. I am Caleb Castro. Thank you for uh, for being a part of our cult following. Uh, this is not a cult, but it is a a uh, a a small place with uh, the dissemination of strange ideas and uh, and uh, hopefully the building up in particular doctrines of people. Uh, but we are not a cult. That's right, folks. So if you take away nothing else from this introduction or the rest of this episode we are not a cult but what we are here today to do is to pick up where we left off last time continuing our introductory discussion of the apostles creed uh, moving on through the heidelberg catechism as compared to the westminster catechism so let's go then the Heidelberg takes us next after talking about the division of the creed question answer 25 just says since there is but one divine being. So if there's one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Answer, because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true and eternal God. And here's where the Westminster uh, especially shines in really laying this out. So in question eight of the larger catechism, it asks... Fairly simple question. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God, which is identical to the parallel question from the shorter catechism. And then question nine, it says, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. And then question 10, because you're probably asking, oh, what are these personal properties? What are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? It is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. So it is these uh, distinctions made between the persons Um, that are confessed as a part of our Catholic and ecumenical faith. The Father begets the Son. The Son is begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son uh, because we are Western Christians and we believe Western things. (laughs) We affirm the filioque, and if you don't fight me, except don't. You say that um, before we get into the question and answer uh, 11... This is actually one of the contemporary issues. There's something uh, in the past several decades of a fight right now for the orthodox traditional teachings regarding the Trinity. 
there's a movement in scholarly circles and even in some pastoral circles that is rejecting traditional language, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. We do take for granted even the basic language about the Trinity. To, to say that I believe in one God and three persons, to get even to that compact statement that that took several hundred years, probably what, 400 years, 300 years to really kind of get at that expression. In a lot of ways, the, the battle centered around um, the relationship between the father and the son. Right. And then the son's two natures, which then extended some of this into combating heresies um, that extended it up into the 600s even. And then the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the father and the son which, uh, you know, was another several hundred year debate between the Eastern Orthodoxy and, and the Western Church, which Andrew was alluding to there a moment ago. One big issue is a move towards a social Trinitarian articulation, which is at its heart, it's tritheism. It is a belief in three gods, not three persons. The Trinity is expressed in terms of a fellowship, of a relationship there is a form of, if you will, or expression of a relationship in terms of the three persons, so economic relationship. Uh, Augustine and, and Calvin, also in following suit, would speak of the relationship between the Father and the Son, and that they are bound in love, which is the Holy Spirit, except it's articulated in terms of they aren't all separate they're distinct. They are bound together not by that fellowship. It is not the fellowship that makes them the Trinity, but it is their essential deity that they are one God. So what is it that relates God together? Well, it's not their fellowship and their how they organize each other and what they do. It is the essential deity. There is one God. He is one God. If you hear language about the Trinity as a fellowship, that's fine if the language of the essential deity is present. If there is an explicit mention that it is one God, one being of divinity, then there's not an issue. But yeah, if that is missing there and someone's just talking about this relationship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and this, this love, there's likely a creeping towards, or it is an explicit tritheism. And you have on the other end, the moving to Andrew here, not that you believe this, I mean, um, but you're, you're pretty good on this topic, especially uh, the eternal subordination issue. Yeah, the issue of eternal functional subordination. It's been identified by various acronym acronyms. So uh, EFS and then ESS, eternal subordination of the sun, or ERAS, eternal relationships of authority and submission. Um, so basically, that's a theology that's grown up in some sort of Calvinist-leaning Baptist circles over the last a uh, decade or two or three, popularized by the likes of Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware, and even carried on through guys like Owen Strand, 
who's very popular today. He wrote a book, uh, Christianity and Wokeness. Basically, they answer social trinitarianism as it is often used in defense of egalitarianism with a different kind of social trinitarianism that tries to use the relations between the persons of the trinity as a model for gender roles. They're using this as a defense of complementarianism that somehow, some way, the son is eternally subordinate to the father even to the point where they start to use some language that would deny that the son has a will or that the son shares in the will of the one being that is god yeah it essentially breaks down into a functional i mean you could say tritheism but in a way it goes beyond tritheism also almost into like it's retreading arianism where the son is not equal with the father or the son is not god in the same way that uh, the father is god as far as particular theological and political commitments you see this social trinitarianism leaning left and then you see it leaning right as well in an attempt to try to uphold well they call it complementarianism which we could get into a whole other can of worms about the state of complementarianism mm-hmm. But we're not going to because that's not what we're doing here today. (laughs) That is a a good thing you brought up. Do you see, though, how a doctrine of the Trinity, uh, ontological and economic Trinity, a doctrine of knowing who this God is that acts in this creation, how he relates to his creation, the doctrine of uh, the Trinity affects other areas of theology. The doctrine of the Trinity heavily affects an anthropology, a doctrine of of humanity, which also includes a doctrine of sin, of how we might relate to one another as people, but also how we relate to God covenantally. If you rattle and are off in terms of your doctrine of the Trinity, then how is it going to affect the rest of your theology? In one additional manner, though, it's interesting to note that uh, some of the strongest stalwart defenders of the doctrine of the Trinity uh, in this day is actually uh, among the Roman Catholics. So they have a very strong and robust doctrine in terms of the distinctions without separation of the technical aspects of the ontological and economic trinities, but they don't functionally apply it properly in terms of then how God relates to creation. So I'm saying there's there's not always that guarantee exactly of saying, okay, well, if you have a grasp of the the Trinity, you're then always going to apply it well. Well, we, we need to look at scripture first and see how God reveals himself. If you're trying to go and create a doctrine of the Trinity and then just create a separate subcategory of a doctrine of man and and all that just from a logical or philosophical basis you're going to go askew these doctrines have to come from scripture itself right and just by the way since we keep batting these terms around and we haven't really explained them uh, just to put succinctly ontological and economic so when we talk about ontological and the ontological trinity we're talking about god as he is in his being god in what is essential to him and then the economic trinity is that relation to us that relation to creation god in what he does just so we're clear on the definitions of those 
But as far as we need to talk about these things as they are presented in scripture, that's a great segue into question 11 of the Westminster Larger. How does it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? Well, the answer is the scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names. And then here a lot of proof texts are provided about uh, where the same names are used, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. So, uh, you know, this is something you always run into when you're talking about the Trinity. The first complaint you'll get from someone who denies the Trinity is always, well, the Trinity is not taught in the Bible. Well, it's not taught in the Bible insofar as the exact words are used that, oh, the, the Trinity is... Uh, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit using this kind of language. But this is an example of, again, to use the terminology of the Westminster Standards, a doctrine that is derived by good and necessary consequence. When you look at all of the evidence that is put forth in Scripture concerning God and concerning the three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this is what you are left with. This is what you are forced to deduce based on the whole of biblical evidence. If you deviate at this from any point, you're necessarily forcing uh, errors and contradictions onto the scriptures. So I, I don't think it's here in the Westminster. Uh, it's, it's in question answer nine. Uh, the proof text in there, we have a, a controversial, well-known proof text of 1 John 5, 7. For uh, those in the majority text position states, for there are three that bear record in he heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Or smoothed out in a other well-known translations, I'll say uh, just New King James here, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. This is also proof text in question answer 25 of the Heidelberg Catechism as well. So in talking about the teachings of the Trinity and Scripture, at some point there has to be, at least confessionally, uh, there, there has to be a question that we ourselves must ask. Is First John 5, 7, is the so-called Johannine comma, this majority text rendering of it, this textual witness, is this the right witness? Or is it, say, in the, let's just say, English Standard Version, the English Standard Version of this same text in 1 John 5, 7, and 8 says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So we ask, well, you know, which translation is correct here? That's a big question. There's those that reject the Johannine comma. There's some that don't. Right. This becomes a question of, does this actually teach the Trinity, or we might also ask then, uh, whereas the word Trinity is not explicitly used in other passages, there is also uh, Matthew 28 um, and the Great Commission, right? When we see Jesus' command to go and baptize, uh, make disciples of every nation, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, is when we see those three together, even though the word Trinity is not used, we must consider that as a text of the trinity that's important too because you bring up the textual issues and obviously these are deeply divisive issues even within the reformed community even within our own churches and denominations let's just be clear at the outset the doctrine of the trinity does not stand or fall on first john 5 7 mm -hmm. and some try to make the case 
particularly trying to defend the authenticity of that text where they say that it does. It doesn't. Because, yeah, we have the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We have other texts such as, and these are other proof texts even provided here in question nine of the larger. You have Jesus' baptism. It uses particularly the one in Matthew 3. You clearly see Trinitarian action and activity there of all three persons. You see uh, the Son being baptized. You see the Father speaking from heaven this is my son you see the spirit descending like a dove they're all there and then you also see uh paul's blessing at the end of second corinthians uh, the grace of the lord jesus christ and the love of god and the communion of the holy spirit be with you all you have those texts just as examples that present uh these three persons all together and then you have the texts about each of them individually which as i talked about under question 11 that ascribe to each of the person's names attributes works and worship that are proper to god only recognizing the the issues with the text again the issues with the text themselves do not make or break the doctrine of the trinity now it's not to say that those issues don't matter um they're a bit beyond the purview of what we're doing here today and mm -hmm. but just to throw that out there it's like that's not determinative of defending this doctrine. And that's the nature of what people call so-called proof texting, right? It's not about throwing out, see, here's exactly what this verse says. Uh, this is this proves such and such doctrine. No, what, what Andrew's uh, particularly getting at here is doctrines are, are stitched and composited together, not upon a one singular text, but upon the whole counsel of God, mm -hmm. uh, that what the entirety of scripture says and that therefore it becomes articulated in this way. Scripture is expressing these things. If we're putting it together, then we might compact it into this way of saying it. So it's not, uh, would we say that logical rule? It's not deductive, right? Where you start with a thesis and then explain it, right? Is that, or is it inductive? Isn't that inductive? Here? Yeah, I always flip them. Right. It's not starting with the doctrinal thesis. Here's what we want to teach. And then here's the text for that. But it has to start from here's what scripture says. And here's then what we must believe. Uh, again, to use that, that term from the Westminster Confession, those doctrines that we arrive at by good and necessary consequence. Mm -hmm. When you look at the whole of scripture... And all of the things that it says and all of the the various evidences it presents, th this is what we are left with. This is what we must conclude. Yeah, and this is what ends up with a uh, the interesting aspect then and, and with the Heidelberg of, again, we had said earlier, Olivianus has a, a, something of a thesis in mind. But this is also coming after much fruit of the scriptural evidences. Uh, of, of scriptural work. The Heidelberg is kind of the end product of those scriptural data and now putting it into that format of, uh, well, what is it necessary then to know? This does take it in something of a, here's the thesis and then here's what's being stated, but that's not its origin. Uh, it didn't start with those theses. There were steps prior to it, um, which I think we, we, we spoke about in the first several episodes of our, our Comparing Catechism series. Mm -hmm. The whole point here of the Apostles' Creed, they are articles of the Christian faith, what it is to be a Christian. And so, as Andrew said earlier, when we say, I believe in God the Father, the next question is, well, what do you believe about him? Okay, well, he is almighty, right? Maker of heaven and earth. But then we have to have the question follow up from that. 
What does it mean that God is Father? What does it mean that God is Maker? What does it mean that God is Almighty? What does heaven and earth mean? That's what he said earlier. It's fine to say you believe these things. I believe, credo. But what do you believe? We can't just be spouting the words and going on out autopilot of these things, appealing to them because they're historical. There's no point in confessing these words and reciting them if the confession doesn't first arise from our hearts and without knowing what it is that we believe. So that is probably a good place to stop for now. We've sort of done this, I guess you could say, theological introduction to the catechism. As we continue forward from here in this series, we'll begin to look at the content of the catechism, the articles of it, each individually, and how our other catechisms unpack these doctrines and how they treat them. There were other ways, I mean, with other things we could have gotten into as we introduced the catechism, things like the history, of course, with the Apostles' Creed. There's not much history to tell, to be honest, because the origin of it is a bit uncertain. We know it's ancient. It probably wasn't written by the Apostles like the old tradition of it said, but it was ancient. It's been used in the church, you know, from a very early time in the church. Um, but yeah, what we've kind of tried to do here is sketch out, place a more theological introduction. What is the creed? What is it for? What is it trying to do? What is it trying to teach us? And how, particularly as it pertains to our Reformed theology, is it used and what does it tell us? So, boy, that was a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was Pauline. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah. So, we thank you for joining us once again on Once for All Delivered. You probably if you've been with the, if you're still with us, you've been with us before. So, you know the drill. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, you can email us ofadpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. We have a website, onceforalldelivered.com. We've got all our current and past episodes. And if you like what we're doing and uh, want to support us financially, we appreciate those of you who do that. You know, whatever we get. Like I said, we try to, we'll use it to make the show better, uh, use it to grow the show. But yeah, Caleb, any final words? Well, that sounded threatening and ominous. Some final words for the episode. No, that's it. It's nice to be able to come back on and, and record. You know, it's a nice little additional hobby uh, outlet to kind of rearticulate. It's almost in some ways like a wedding stone for me, you know, that it kind of helps sharpen me again in, in some of these more doctrinal categories. Not that always writing sermons and, and the pastoral aspects of ministry are bad, wrong, or whatever. But it, it does help to be able to, you know, talk in these ways of some theological sketching. You know, it's nice. It's like it's like flexing a muscle. I haven't used it in a little bit. Right. Not that we don't also venture off into the weird world of uh, transgenderism <laughs> and artificial intelligence and all those other fun things, which... We may not even yet be done with. We keep finding more things about those no, that maybe more. we'll come back to. We have. There's always more. We haven't even spoken about the Vatican yet. <laughs> yeah. We also didn't make any of the, the Creed, the band jokes we thought we were going to make in this episode. So I know. I mean, it's. I thought that our, our arms would be wide open, but um, apparently not. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I guess we just won't take you higher <laughs> this time. We took them high enough. We're just trapped here in our own prison. Yeah. 
but maybe next time. We have quite a lot of Creed to cover. Yes. So, all right. Well, all this time later, we still don't have a pithy sign-off phrase, so... Yeah, but we'll, uh... But we, we can always just tell Heidi to start the music, and then, yeah. Heidi yep. will be our pithy sign-off. Yep. Take it, Heidi. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.